Last night, a confidential source disclosed to me that British arms are being sold to Italian red terrorist groups. I see. May I ask who this confidential source was? Humphrey, I just said it was confidential. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I naturally assumed that meant you were going to tell me. You seem to be very worried by this information. Well, these things happen all the time. It's not our problem. <laughs> so does robbery with violence. Doesn't that worry you? No, Minister. Home office problem. <laughs> Humphrey, we are letting terrorists get hold of murderous weapons. We're not. Well, who is? Well, who knows? Department of Trade, Ministry of Defence, Foreign Office. We, Humphrey, the British government. Innocent lives are being set at risk by British arms in the hands of terrorists. Only Italian lives, not British lives. <laughs> British tourists abroad. Tourists? Foreign Office problem. Humphrey, we have to do something. With respect, Minister, we have to do nothing. What do you mean? The sale of arms abroad is one of those areas of government that we do not examine too closely. Well, I have to, now that I know about well, it. But you can say you don't know. You're suggesting I should lie? Oh, not you, Mr. No. Well, who should lie? Sleeping dogs, Minister. <laughs> now, I'm going to raise this. Huh? No, Minister, I beg you. A basic rule of government is never look into anything you don't have to. And never set up an inquiry unless you know in advance what its findings will be. this. We're talking about good and evil. Ah, Church of England problem. No, Humphrey. <laughs> Our problem. We are discussing right and wrong. You may be, Minister, but I'm not. It would be a serious misuse of government time. Selling arms to terrorists is wrong. Can't you see that, Humphrey? No, Minister. Either you sell arms or you don't. If you sell them, they will inevitably end up with people who have the cash to buy them. But not terrorists. Well, I suppose we could put some sort of government health warning on the rifle, but... <laughs> this gun can seriously damage your health. <laughs> it's all very well to take this lightly, Humphrey. But we cannot close our eyes to something that is as morally wrong as this. Very well, Minister. If you insist on making me discuss moral issues, may I point out to you that something is either morally wrong or it isn't. It can't be slightly morally wrong. No, don't quibble, Humphrey. Government isn't about morality. Really? What is it about, then? Stability. Keeping things going. Preventing anarchy. Stopping society. Falling to bits. Still being here tomorrow. What for? <laughs> what is the ultimate purpose of government, if it isn't for doing good? Minister, government isn't about good and evil. It's only about order or chaos. And it's in order for Italian terrorists to get British bombs. And you don't care? It's not my job to care. That's what politicians are for. My job is to carry out government policy. Even if you think it's wrong? Well, almost all government policy is wrong, but... <laughs> frightfully well carried out. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Life and Life Only. And this is The Miracle of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Now those of you who listened to the last episode will have heard me in the intro telling you that this was going to be the next episode. And if you're not familiar with Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, it probably would be a good idea just to at least watch a few clips which can be found online before you listen to this. Of course you don't have to, but it might work out well to get you... Uh, on board with uh, the tone of this show. I don't really need to say too much before we start 
except to say that I wrote this blog post in 2014. I watched every single episode of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. I watched multiple documentaries and I actually had the book on the making of it. It was a hell of a lot of work, but it was enjoyable, it was stimulating, and I learned a great deal. Now, we'll get on to the precise title and why I've called it that. It's right at the beginning of the blog post, in fact. But basically, when you look at a comedy like this, there are, of course, two levels. You know, you can look at comedy purely as comedy. You know, for example, Monty Python or Blackadder or things like that. Those two, which I would hold in quite high esteem in terms of British comedies. But then... In the case of Monty Python, they've also got levels, you know, they're lampooning authority figures, etc. We did a film gold episode on Monty Python, the Holy Grail, which you might want to go back to as well, where we talked about that. This is a very different comedy. One of the miracles is the fact that it has no sex, no violence, except perhaps verbal violence, <laughs> and really no action at all. But uh, as you're listening, yeah, think about those two levels and the fact that the best comedy really does work on those levels well really simultaneously so uh, I think the best thing is that I just start reading and then I'll interject I haven't planned the interjections and in fact I haven't read this blog post for a long time but I know what's in it so we'll see how this goes so introduction I first saw political satire Yes Minister and its sequel Yes Prime Minister as a teenager at that time, I already appreciated the comedy, particularly the wittiness of the script and verbal dexterity of some of the characters. However, having looked at it again in my 30s, from a far more aware and worldly vantage point, I now appreciate it even more, and for reasons above and beyond the original ones. The miracle reference in the title of this post refers firstly to the brilliance of that rare achievement of combining comedy that stands the test of time solely for its comedic quality, with a profundity and a clear demonstration of a truth, in this case the way we are governed and how the world appears to really work behind the scenes. The other miraculous thing, however, is how this show and its message seem to slip through the net and not incite any further investigation behind the appreciation of the humour, even in the last few years when a community known as the alternative media, or the truth movement, has risen to prominence, primarily through the internet. I've seen barely any mentions of this show from the British side of this alternative media, and the mainstream seems now to regard it with nostalgia and affection merely as a much-needed exercise in the lampooning of our leaders in the tradition of the satirical magazine Private Eye and long-running panel show Have I Got News For You, both of which involve the key participation of Oxford graduate Ian Hislop. Seeing Yes Minister slash Prime Minister as a clever and truthful comedy, but no reason for uproar, seems to me at the same time surprising and sadly predictable, particularly since there never seems to have been any great impetus on Hislop's part to turn his accumulated knowledge into activism and the seeking of any change in the establishment. As we shall see when examining Yes Minister, for simplicity's sake I will refer to the show in general as Yes Minister, unless referring to the sequel specifically. The maintaining of one's career, especially one of privilege and comfort, is paramount to all but the most ideologically driven and some would say foolish, and his lot was educated at a pillar of the establishment, as were the writers of Yes Minister. I will examine the show on two levels, first as purely a comedy show, and then in its relationship to the real world, which evidence suggests is a close and only slightly exaggerated one. So yes, the best comedy, as I've said before on various podcasts, is a slight exaggeration of the truth. Part of the reason people laugh is when they realise that something is true as well as funny. So just uh, a couple of comments there. 
as I said, yeah, this is not um, what might be called truth comedy in the sense of someone trying to get the truth out there to change the world. Ironically, I first talked about this on Julian Charles's show, The Mind Renewed, at the beginning of 2015 in an episode called Truth Comedy. I put it in there because I believe it's the truth or very close to it, and it is comedy. But like I say, I don't think the intention was there to change anything because, as I said, it's made by establishment figures. I mean, Monty Python is the same. You know, they were in a strange position, apart from Terry Gilliam, in that they were establishment figures, but they were what you might call establishment rebels, in that compared to the establishment, they were perhaps considered dissidents or outsiders, but whether they actually wanted to change society is is arguable. The other thing I wanted to say was, right on the outset, that there was a show made in the 2000s called The Thick of It, and there was a spin-off film called In The Loop. And I did enjoy those, and they were essentially Yes Minister updated so there was more swearing it was probably more realistic in that sense because you can imagine that there probably is a lot of swearing in politics but i felt that the malcolm tucker character even though he was brilliantly played by peter capaldi it all became about how creative his swearing was because he would make up words and have these amazing put downs that are brilliantly written you know but it really took away from the fact that that was showing as well the reality and i'll just say this off the bat to save saying it later but as I've said, there seems to be this strange thing where I know a lot of people who love Yes Minister, but then they don't believe in conspiracies. And I, and I realise we've covered this extensively on Life and Life Honey. I'm not going to go through all that again, except to say that it's interesting that someone can accept that most things go on behind closed doors, but then another part of them will, as Ian Hislop does in Private Eye, they'll have cartoons of tinfoil hats when you're actually talking about anything that might change the world there was even a moment actually on have i got news for you which is the panel show i just referenced Uh, again you can watch clips anywhere if you're not from the british isles and you're not familiar with that it's worth having a look at a few clips there's actually a point where someone made a comment about jfk and just for a second you could have heard a pin drop and i think the guest host said something like oh that was a long time ago which is one of those stock answers but uh, that was a strange moment i think i'll say on the outset that i don't think the makers of this show were trying to actually change society, but uh, they came up with a, an incredible show anyway. I'm going to carry on because we've got a great deal to cover. Yes Minister, 1979 to 1984, and Yes Prime Minister, 1986 to 1988, were political satire sitcoms written by Oxford graduates Anthony Jay and Jonathan Lynn. Jay had previously worked on the satirical shows Tonight and That Was a Week That Was in the 1960s before forming Video Arts with John Cleese in 1972. In 2007, he criticised the BBC and The Guardian for being, quote, anti-establishment and anti-everything and said that the BBC staff had opinions at odds with the majority of the audience and the electorate. In 2008, he proposed, via a report, a radical reduction in the scale of the BBC's activities. Jonathan Lynn was an actor and writer who later became a film director. Jay likened Yes Minister to the British sitcom Steptoe and Son, with the younger idealist optimistic aspirations being tempered by the older person's knowledge of what really goes on in the world. Lynn joined the Cambridge Union and found that the prominent debaters were all, quote, pompous, self-satisfied, self-important clowns who would later be front benchers and essentially play out the same scenes in Westminster. So yes, that's been remarked on by a lot of people that the debating societies of the elite universities 
there's a, a seamless uh, transition. Now, just talking about Steptone Sun, those who've migrated from my Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, Steptone Sun included Wilfred Bramble, who was in A Hard Day's Night. But it's interesting there, the idea of the younger idealist being tempered by the older person's knowledge of what really goes on in the world and presumably the things that can't be changed. So I think there is a general sense that things are what they are and the reaction to it is to become cynical. And, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I have been, I have become quite cynical in some senses, but I try and retain that idea that things can change because things do change in society. I think sometimes we just don't think they do or, you know, we notice it at the time. There are certain things that seem immovable, so we don't actually realise that things have changed. Okay, carrying on. Much of the material for the shows came from insider information given in the 1970s by Marsha Williams, former private secretary to Harold Wilson, and a hugely influential and troublesome figure to the former Prime Minister, and Bernard Donoghue, who was head of 10 Downing Street's political unit under Wilson and James Callaghan. These two sources spoke independently and off the record about how the system worked, and their identities were not revealed until much later. The 1974 publication of former Wilson cabinet member Richard Crossman's diaries also provided vital information, in particular on one episode that dealt specifically with troublesome diary revelations. The scenes in the show were all written to take place in private offices rather than in Parliament because the writers realised through their sources that that's where all the decisions had always taken place, brackets, and still do. The show has been compared with 1984 in influencing the public's view of the state, though as previously mentioned, this has never quite cut through the essential trust that our leaders are foolish and corrupt, but perhaps not to levels sinister enough to warrant any serious examination by the public at large. Interestingly, the pilot episode for the show had to be delayed until that year, 1979's election, a fine example of the very politics that the show lampoons affecting the show itself before a single episode had even aired. So, talking about leaders being foolish and corrupt, one of the alternatives to the conspiracy theory, if you don't believe it, is the cock-up theory. And uh, I think it's very easy. I'm, I'm sitting here now in May 2022, and our Prime Minister is Boris Johnson, who's a very, very easy figure to lampoon. But, you know, who knows? He might be very intelligent and playing dumb. You know, that could be something he does for his survival. I don't know. I think the fact that he has such a lampoonable public image doesn't help. The principal characters, Jim Hacker, Minister of the Fictional Department of Administrative Affairs, DAA, and later Prime Minister. He formally edited a presumably progressive newspaper called Reform. Sir Humphrey Appleby, Permanent Secretary of the Department of Administrative Affairs and later Cabinet Secretary. Bernard Woolley, Hacker's Principal Private Secretary. Sir Arnold Robinson, Cabinet Secretary. He is succeeded by Appleby but continues to appear in the show as his confidant. Dorothy Wainwright, Chief Political Advisor to Prime Minister Hacker. The Minister slash Prime Minister Jim Hacker is essentially an idealist whose self-serving career aspirations supersede and force him to abandon his principles time and again and whose eternal struggle is between his sense of duty to the public and some degree of conscience on one side versus his often desperate attempts at vote-winning, career advancement and the fight to simply survive in the backstabbing cauldron of life inside the political arena. His own wife describes him as a whiskey priest, the definition of which is, quote, a priest who teaches higher morals while showing his own moral weakness. A third element in Hacker's delicate balancing act is his role as party chairman. 
where he must appear to be a good party man and try to keep the factions of the party as united as possible amid constant small and sometimes large conflicts. Hacker's permanent secretary and the head of his department, the DAA, is Sir Humphrey Appleby, who the writers saw as an embodiment in one character of the whole civil service ethos, seeing himself as a defender of the nation's interests against the temporary whims of politicians who never see anything through. The temporary life for politicians is by design, of course, as cabinet reshuffles are used as a weapon against politicians who are starting to get things done and threaten Appleby in his cronies' career and life of privilege, which depends on nothing ever changing, save minor and unavoidable concessions when absolutely necessary. So Humphrey sees Jim Hacker as the civil service's front man, steering their policy through the cabinet and securing the department's budget while they create activity for him, which could be overflowing red boxes full of paperwork, crises, speeches, junkets, emergencies and even such panics as preserving badgers in Warwickshire. So Humphrey actually tells his ministerial master to his face at one point that, quote, you're not here to run this department, but generally works more subtly, using his vast array of tricks and intelligence to bamboozle and sometimes blackmail the minister into taking the decisions that are best for Appleby in the status quo. His first exchange of the series with the newly elected Hacker sets the tone, as they remember a previous meeting when Hacker's party were in opposition. Hacker, opposition is about answering tough questions, Sir Humphrey, and government is about not answering them. Hacker, were you answered or mine? Sir Humphrey, I'm glad you thought so, Minister. So some great writing there, and... um, also, the general conceit, as we said, that the civil servants are there not to change anything. And, of course, you have to think about the rulers of our world, certainly in England, and I'd say in America as well. There's very few working-class top politicians. Most of these people come up in privilege. You know, Of course, a politician didn't used to be a celebrity and a high earner, and this idea of the career politician is so prevalent now and a career politician is looking after their career and their career depends on being re-elected and in their privileged position not being threatened and also in general you know there's all kinds of theories about the middle class the upper class and the working class and what their relationship is to each other but uh, suffice it to say that the elite they have to give the public just enough freedom so there's no open rebellion and keep them distracted, as we've talked about many times, with football and celebrity culture, so that nothing too drastic happens and nothing much changes. Continuing. Also in the first episode, we see the plotting of Appleby and the first evidence of him house-training Hacker in the ways of survival and necessary compromises. With Hacker full of the need for open government, which the civil service is a contradiction in terms, i.e. you can either be open or you can be in government, Sir Humphrey and Cabinet Secretary Sir Arnold quickly scheme to trap the patriotic hacker over VDU's computer screens produced in America. Hacker immediately tries to stop the order and order British ones, angering the Prime Minister, who unbeknownst to Hacker is trying to make moves to cultivate the special relationship that has existed between Great Britain and the USA since the Second World War. Hacker is tricked into making a speech about it, Appleby playing on his patriotism and wish to criticise the previous government. He feigns ignorance of the consequences and finally Hacker, fearing one of the shortest ministerial careers on record, asks whether they could, quote, hush it up. In other words, take a flexible posture, thus making it temporarily at least the closed season for open government. So again, some fantastic wordplay. On the subject of hushing things up, for those of you who 
heard my review of the film yesterday, which is a romantic comedy based on the premise that the that everybody's forgotten the Beatles except one person. I talked about cultural reinforcement and the idea that when you put an idea out in the mainstream and you dress it up, for example, as something comedic, it's accepted by people. And in the 80s, there was a new chocolate bar made by Cadbury's, I believe, called Whisper, W-I-S-P-A. And they got Paul Eddington, who was Jim Hacker, and Nigel Hawthorne, who's Sam for Appleby, to make an advert advertising Whisper. And it was all about, you know, they were talking in whispers. And it was making light of this uh, secrecy idea. I feel I must draw your attention to a certain item. Oh, what's that? It's a new bar by the name of Whisper. They're made entirely from milk chocolate. It tastes curiously different. But your imagine chocolate is chocolate. But this is made by Cadbury's, with a texture that some have described as velvety. Mmm. Say, it really is splendid. So good, we ought to hush it up for a while. <laughs> is that prudent? Remember Watergate. Cadbury's new whisper, the ultimate chocolate experience. Bite it and believe it. Obviously, I didn't really place that at the time because I was about 10 when that came out. And I had seen a little bit of Yes Minister, actually, but never, as I said in the introduction, I didn't really, you know, you can't expect a 10-year-old really to <laughs> read too much into it. But it's very interesting. You can see the advert now on YouTube and it's interesting seeing it. That's a very good example of cultural reinforcement. I mean, it's just a funny advert and no one's going to look beyond that and see any significance to that. Carrying on. Today, Sir Humphrey is seen as a comedy hero, which may be true in the context of pure fiction, but as we've discussed and we'll see later, we can't fully separate fact from fiction, and so we are associating the word hero with a person who is certainly morally warped by defending his precious career, and could even be argued to have psychopathic tendencies. He is a moral vacuum, and jokingly refers to his hopes that the same tag will eventually be applied to his civil service underling and hacker's principal private secretary, Bernard Woolley, who is stuck in the middle and often involved in genuine moral quandaries. Officially, Woolley answers to the minister, but he is at the same time having to manage his own career aspirations in the civil service, which are in part under the control of Sir Humphrey. Like Sir Humphrey and most of the civil service, he went to Oxford and studied classics, the study of the languages, culture, history and thought of the civilizations of ancient Greece and Rome. Sir Humphrey often schools Woolley on the system, a lot of which information Woolley then diplomatically passes on to Hacker. One can only admire the ability of the writers and performers to make comedy gold out of middle-aged men talking about horribly dry subjects, with no sex to titillate the audience, and with no more action than Sir Humphrey, sometimes rushing into a room to question one of Hacker's decisions or stop him naively making a potentially damaging statement or address to the media. Now, I just want to say one thing. Some of you who know this show might think it ridiculous to talk about Sir Humphrey as a psychopath because the uh, Hollywood view of the psychopath is someone who's going to go around killing people. But research over the last few years has identified sociopaths and psychopaths, and a lot of it is to do with being able to make very immoral decisions and justify it to yourself. Now, one thing I've learned in my many years of reading psychology books and studying the world, let's say, is that essentially people can do anything if they can justify it to themselves. So that's how you get the death camp guards in the Second World War. And obviously Sir Humphrey has a career in the show. He has a wife and presumably has children. Certain people do ascend through the ranks because they have certain qualities. And uh, I wouldn't rule out 
the fact that there are people who seem very respectable and wear nice suits and speak with very good language, but, you know, they may have those tendencies. Okay, moving on. There is a Jeeves and Worcester element to the Hacker to Humphrey relationship, where the servant is really pulling the strings while ever so politely deferring to his supposed master. He uses his superior breeding and command of language to either totally confuse him or fill him with fear, such as calling one of Hacker's proposed policies courageous, the known implication being that, quote, controversial loses votes while courageous loses elections. Even those in such revered positions as Prime Minister are dismissed by Sir Humphrey as, quote, like actors, they just have to look plausible, stay sober, and say the lines they're given. Sir Humphrey is an utter snob, which again puts Hacker in a position of inferiority, such as when the Employment Secretary plans to relocate 300,000 service personnel to the north to create jobs in areas like maintenance and administration, the only objection being that it'll deny senior officers' wives the delights of Henley, Wimbledon and their other customary social events. With the Cabinet mostly in agreement and no plausible objection to offer, Sir Humphrey decides to make Prime Minister Hacker paranoid by praising the Employment Secretary profusely, noting his popularity and talking of rumours of plots and him being touted as the next PM. The Employment Secretary eventually resigns when he finds his proposal off the Cabinet agenda with no proper reason given and he is quoted as referring to Hacker's dictatorial government Sir Humphrey's description of the cabinet as, quote, a loose confederation of warring tribes who can't be trusted is mostly accurate and an effective weapon when required. This tactic of overpraising others to make Hacker feel threatened is explained by the idea that you have to be behind someone to stab them in the back. However, the episodes were cleverly designed so that Hacker sometimes comes out on top, thus avoiding the show lapsing into predictability. Sometimes the desires of the politician and civil servant coincide, allowing them to team up to achieve victory, such as when their department is threatened with extinction. So there you have the idea of a comedy or any piece of entertainment really needing tropes. And, you know, there is some conflict in the sense that Bernard Woolley is in the middle of... uh, Hacker and Appleby, as I mentioned before. And, you know, this is a piece of entertainment, so you need variety. It would just be boring if every single episode was Appleby blackmailing Hacker into doing what he wants. Sometimes, as I say, it's the other way around. Sometimes they team up, and it's delightful the way that they manage to keep that variety going. I mean, it's just, I'd even say it's genius the way this thing is crafted. Now, the paranoia around Westminster, which is the seat of the British Parliament, is I'm sure mirrored in Washington as well, Washington DC. And this idea of planting rumours, so I do remember that episode where Appleby makes Hacker paranoid by mentioning the employment secretary and then he talks about rumours and this is what the media does and it seems to get people every single time. People, I think, believe there's no smoke without fire. So as mentioned before on episodes of Life and Life Only, we know for a fact that the CIA infiltrated the american mainstream media and i wouldn't be surprised if that happened here and they know how to trigger reactions from the public i know i've gone through this many times for regular listeners but i guess i feel like sometimes you have to hammer this point the department the daa is orwellian a whole department set up to administrate administrators and to use or waste resources in order to make cuts in other departments. When Hacker proposes a 25% quota of women in top civil service positions in the next four years, starting now, Sir Humphrey replies that it takes time to do things now, and the civil service code is apparently that it takes longer to do things quickly, it's more expensive to do them cheaply, and it's more democratic to do them in secret. 
pure Orwell. When Hacker does find a woman to offer a top job to in the civil service, she turns down the promotion and promptly resigns from the service, fed up of, quote, circulating information not relevant about subjects that don't matter to people who aren't interested, as well as the pointless intrigue and not wanting now to be Hacker's Trojan horse and part of a 25% quota. In another episode, Hacker hears of a hospital with 500 staff and no patients because they only get in the way. A similar attitude as expressed by Basil Fawlty of the famous 1970s sitcom Fawlty Towers who asserted that running a hotel would be fine if it wasn't for the bloody guests. The hospital has not surprisingly won the Florence Nightingale Award for cleanest hospital. Civil servants use unions and their threat of strikes to stop politicians closing useless sites that create jobs such as the hospital without patients. Gerald Scarfe's animated opening titles provide warped caricatures of the main characters, clearly showing that what we are watching within the show is a distortion of reality, something not quite right. Gerald Scarfe also did the animations for the film Pink Floyd The Wall, which we reviewed on Film Gold. You see, it all ties in, ladies and gentlemen. Those of you who follow all three of my podcasts, my one-man podcast network, know that everything ties together. For people not in the British Isles who've never heard of Faulty Towers, I can't imagine anyone in the British Isles who hasn't. It really is worth having a look at a few episodes. Again, there are clips available everywhere, not difficult to find. And that's a work of genius and ties into Monty Python because it's John Cleese, who is one of the Pythons. Another interesting aspect is how Sir Humphrey, brilliantly played by the award-winning Nigel Hawthorne, often falls into spluttering incoherence and affects a little boy lost face when confronted with situations he can't get out of, such as the revealing of a gaffe he made as a young civil servant that cost millions of pounds, or indiscreet remarks made on a rare radio appearance when he believes the tapes have stopped rolling. Bernard Woolley has some wonderful lines, such as in the very first episode where he compares ministers to chairs, stating that some fold up instantly while others go round and round in circles. And when he explains that ministers can't go anywhere without their briefs in case they get caught with their trousers down. There is endless wordplay in this and it's all fantastic. And his character is a vital third balancing element in the show. Episodes of the show typically start with Hacker wanting to affect change and usually being thwarted at every turn by the wily Sir Humphrey, despite the various civil service departments all agreeing, in principle who has seen previous ministers in Hacker's position uncover the same areas of reform and so is well skilled in stonewalling tactics, often with five point or more points, plans memorised that are tried and tested and almost guaranteed to have their desired effect of preventing progress and change. He usually assures Hacker that things will definitely be done, but in the fullness of time, in due course, when conditions allow, and at the appropriate juncture. After all, Rome wasn't built in a day, etc. Phrases that Sir Humphrey occasionally finds used back at him on the rare occasions that he needs something done quickly, such as civil servants' honours approval and pay rises. Yes, that was a great thing where they turned it round and uh, to have Sir Humphrey actually wanting something done quickly and then Hacker got to say, in the fullness of time, in due course, when conditions allow, at the appropriate juncture. Ah, it's all great stuff. And... uh, the thing about Sir Humphrey suddenly looking like a little boy when he gets caught out. Again, it's genius because you just don't expect it. This guy is always in control of very rare occasions when he's not. The fact that Hawthorne can suddenly look like that is just fantastic. Early on, Hacker realises that he's trapped under the weight of contrived and tedious tasks and paperwork that are a hindrance to his genuine desire to make his mark. And in despair, he laments that There's either so little information that you don't know the facts, or so much that you can't find it. 
Files are routinely buried, Willie telling Hacker that in government speak and on official letters, a matter that is under consideration means they've lost the file, and one under active consideration means they're trying to find it. In a later episode, a reference is made to filing a document as the best way of keeping it hidden. As far as the information given to Hacker by the civil servants, the prime focus is to ensure that he can't ask questions by preventing him from knowing that there's something to ask. Cover-ups are euphemised as responsible discretion in the national interest to prevent unnecessary disclosures of justifiable procedures which may provide untimely revelations. As he slowly learns how things work, Hacker eventually comes up with a classic observation that you should never believe anything until it's officially denied a line that astute observers of the real political world often quote and use themselves. It is interesting to consider whether some secrecy truly is necessary. Commenting on the aforementioned patientless hospital, Sir Humphrey not only defends its continued existence and administrative activity as growth, but states that, quote, the public don't care what's done with their money as long as they don't know about it. And I put in brackets, I can attest to this willful ignorance and the feeling that the minutiae is boring with a basic standard of living acceptable as long as the public get their treats. Even a credit crunch, that was the another name for the financial crisis of 2008, can be laughed about, as I saw with a performer at an open mic night singing his credit crunch blues to the delight of the audience, most of whom probably didn't even know what this new media buzzword actually meant. This same kind of logic is used with the issue of the expensive nuclear defence system known as Trident. So Humphrey explaining that the defence policy is to make people secure and Trident is good because it costs billions of pounds. If people start thinking, they'll start talking and questioning, which is ultimately bad for everyone. We all like to think that deep down we are truth seekers, but do we really want to know the truth about everything? This is me, by the way, not Sir Humphrey. Would carnivores enjoy a trip to an abattoir to see exactly how their meat is extracted and processed? Do smokers, even those who profess to genuinely enjoy it and not want to give up the habit, want to see the true state of their lungs? And I would add the contents of a cigarette as well. It's absolutely horrifying. Do any of us want to know what precisely is in our food? So Humphrey may have a point on this occasion. And let's add to that to really make everyone uncomfortable. Do you want to know how some of the parts that make up the smartphone are extracted don't think you do for those who are interested you can easily find out but it's pretty uncomfortable with hindsight looking at this in 2022 and i don't think my views have changed too much since 2014 but you know hopefully they're getting nuanced all the time i would say that samfrey definitely does have a point there people don't want to know certain things you know we want to have a reasonably comfortable existence and um This is not my line, but someone did once say that as long as men have access to beer and women have access to shoes, people are reasonably happy. I know that sounds probably a bit offensive now. Obviously, it's very, very general, but it's just making the point. The point being that, um, as I said, when we have certain comforts, we probably don't want to know too much beyond that. After three series of watching this power struggle play out while Hacker is Minister of the DAA, The 1984 Christmas Special Party Games finally brings us to a major and crucial development in his seemingly stagnant career. The rather unlikely scenario plays out like this. While negotiating the remarkably complicated procedure for giving Christmas cards and presents, for example having to sign different cards as Minister, Party Chairman and just plain Jim, and I'll just add to that, there's one that's Annie and Jim, Annie's his wife, Another one's Annie and Jim Hacker, Jim and Annie Hacker. (laughs) Obviously it's, it's exaggerated, but... That scene is absolutely priceless in uh, that special called Party Games. 
With a bottle of champagne being the customary surprise gift, Hacker learns of the Prime Minister's sudden resignation amid rumours of his being an agent for the other side. Just prior to this, Cabinet Secretary Sir Arnold Robinson has taken early retirement, with Sir Humphrey getting promoted to be his replacement after assuring Sir Arnold that he's up to the main job requirement of finding questions rather than answers, while discreetly offering to arrange various chairmanships for the outgoing Cabinet Secretary. The Chancellor of the Exchequer and Foreign Secretary are the front-runners for the job of Prime Minister, both of them at the same time offering Hacker their jobs in exchange for his support as party chairman, while also threatening him if he betrays them. Seeing that both are interventionists with firm ideas, the scheming Sir Arnold and Sir Humphrey agree on a compromise candidate with, quote, an open, uncluttered mind who can be controlled. How are things at the campaign for the freedom of information, by the way? Sorry, I can't talk about that. (laughs) So, will the new PM be our eminent chancellor or our distinguished foreign secretary? Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Which do you think it should be? Difficult. Like asking which lunatic should run the asylum. (laughs) The trouble is, they're both interventionists. They'd both have foolish notions about running the country themselves if they became Prime Minister. Have we any allies? Oh, quite a few, yeah. Chief Whip, particularly. And he's worried that whichever gets the job will antagonise the other's supporters and split the party. So we're looking for a compromise candidate. Mm. Malleable? Flexible. Likeable? No firm opinion. No bright idea. Not intellectually committed. <laughs> Without the strength of purpose to change anything. Someone who you know can be manipulated, professionally guided. (laughs) And leave the business of government in the hands of the experts. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. It's impossible. Why, a lot of the government would welcome a, shall we say, less interventionist leader. Well, not the other two candidates. (laughs) (laughs) They might be persuaded. Want to stand aside? Yes. Have you had a chance to glance at their MI5 files? No. Oh, you should always send for cabinet ministers MI5 files if you enjoy a good laugh. (laughs) Oh, Bernard. Sir, just... Thank you very much. Yes, do sit down. Oh, thank you. Happy New Year, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Bernard, just let me ask you something. What would you say to your present master as the next Prime Minister? (laughs) The Minister? Yes. Mr. Hacker? Yes. (laughs) As Prime Minister? Yes. Are you in a hurry? Uh, No, I'm just checking to see it wasn't April the 1st. Are you suggesting that your minister is not up to the job of Prime Minister? Oh, no, Sir Arnold, it's not for me to... uh, uh, Well, I mean, of course I'm... I'm I'm sure he's... uh... Oh, gosh. There is a considerable body of opinion that can see many advantages in the appointment. For Britain? For Britain. Uh, Yes, well... Yes. So we trust you to ensure that your minister does nothing incisive or divisive over the next few weeks. Avoids anything controversial. Expresses no firm opinion about anything at all. (laughs) Now, is that quite clear? 
Yes, well, I think that's probably what he was planning to do anyway. The Chancellor and Foreign Secretary's MI5 files are exposed, revealing sexual and financial scandals that persuade them both to withdraw, while Hacker hints to both that he'll help them keep their jobs if they support his own bid for the top job. A public triumph is contrived for Hacker where he successfully prevents the British sausage, which incidentally contains only 30% meat, from being renamed the Euro sausage, using the well-known trick of giving the press bad news today and great news tomorrow for maximum impact and giving a passionate, patriotic speech about encroaching European regulations and the unshakable British resolve. With all the usual profile raising by way of a TV appearance, Hacker becomes probably the most unlikely Prime Minister ever, his face a mixture of pride and utter terror as he receives the news. And yes, Paul Eddington, he plays Jim Hacker, that face he pulls at the end, uh, it's equally as good as Sir Humphrey looking like a little boy. These guys were really fantastic. I mean, they're great actors anyway, but I think they founded these roles, you know, those roles that an actor's always looking for, that they must have connected with him in some way. If you have never seen Yes Minister and, and perhaps you've watched a few clips, if you want to watch one episode that sums things up fairly well, I'd probably go with that one. So it's called Party Games. It was an hour long where the usual episodes are half an hour and it was a Christmas special. I think it was 1984. The other element that I wanted to talk about was the media, which of course we've talked about a lot on Life and Life Only. But in this show, the media play a crucial role in that they are they're almost intermediaries between things. So the journalist will tell Hacker some things about Sir Humphrey and will presumably tell Sir Humphrey some things about Hacker and everybody's playing this game. But what's interesting is that the show really highlights how relatively easy it is to get, let's say, the mass public on someone's side. And we've talked about this before, you know, Noam Chomsky said, I don't know what exact figure, 70 to 80% of the public just go along with things and you're never going to change it. I'm on the fence about that. Sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't. So now we move into the new era, which uh, I would say was equally as good. Uh, you could probably argue that there was a certain amount of repetition after three series, but the difference was that with the Prime Minister, the issues were much bigger. So, yeah, the issues were things like uh, nuclear arms. If you're looking at it just a comedy, perhaps Yes Minister's better, but I think if looking with this broader view about how the world works, I think the Prime Ministerial issues that he deals with are a bit meatier obviously i'm going to recommend you you watch the lot you know three series of yes minister and two of yes prime minister plus a christmas special anyway continuing with the series now renamed yes prime minister but retaining the same three character dynamic as before i.e hacker supposedly in charge and sir humphrey and bernard playing the roles of unofficial advisor and assistant respectively subtle changes occur Hacker starts to assert himself and realise his power, the change described by the writers as like a mouse who learns to be a rat. He gets to school Sir Humphrey on dealing with the media after the latter's indiscreet remarks and perhaps realises that the weightier topics he now has to deal with in his new job demand more worldliness. He is less naive now, showing an awareness of the world that comes with the job, describing a move from the House of Commons to the House of Lords as going from the animals to the vegetables and famously saying to Bernard... Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. The Times is read by people who actually do run the country. The Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. The Financial Times is read by people who own the country. The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. And the Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. 
his thunder is only slightly stolen by Bernard's remark about readers of The Sun that they don't care who runs a country as long as she's got big tits. Hacker also acquires a very capable political advisor called Dorothy Wainwright, who is presumably at least partly based on Marsha Williams, though without her destructive qualities. So Humphrey, of course, has a huge problem with, quote, that Wainwright female, who he patronisingly addresses as dear lady, and who he clearly sees as enough of a threat to try to get her moved away from Hacker to stop her seeing what's going on and revealing plots against him. The struggle between these competing factions and ideologies, or lack thereof, comes out about even in the show, with another famous episode involving Dorothy suggesting changing the locks on the communicating door between the Cabinet Office and the PM's office to prevent Sir Humphrey coming in whenever he feels like it. He's also forbidden from entering through Number 10's front door, so he tries through the garden, is spotted by Hacker, Bernard Woolley and Dorothy, and waves weakly, Nigel Hawthorne again giving a brilliant performance of Sir Humphrey's regression to the look of a small child in vulnerable situations. On this occasion, Hacker gets an office for Dorothy near to him in return for giving Sir Humphrey a new key. On another occasion, Dorothy opposes the routine awarding of the civil service's sacrificial pay rises after finding proposals for a 43% pay rise for top civil servants buried in a very long report. And she also suggests that civil servants be obliged to choose between honours and pensions. She feeds insightful questions to Hacker, but is overheard by Woolley, who quickly briefs Sir Humphrey, a good example of how the now four-person dynamic works. Former Cabinet Secretary Sir Arnold recommends increasing the London Allowance and Outstanding Merit Awards, neither of which count as salary, and classifying less people as civil servants in order to successfully lower the increase figure down to 6%. I think that's called fudging the numbers, isn't it? Dorothy appears to be a genuine reformer, which makes her even more of a problem for the civil service. Among her other proposals and suggestions are an idea to make local government genuinely accountable to the people, with local MPs responsible for a small number of residents and a large local council reporting to a smaller executive council, the scheme to be called Hacker's Reform Bill. Sir Humphrey, of course, prefers to centralise power in a, quote, British democracy, a civilised aristocratic government machine tempered by occasional general elections. Dorothy's proposal even shocks a so-called progressive called Agnes Morehouse, who calls ordinary people simple and finds herself suddenly allied with Sir Humphrey to stop this intrusion of actionable people power. Hacker eventually decides that the people aren't ready for genuine democracy, showing that in the end, all in power are allied by not wanting to risk losing their comfortable positions. On another occasion, Dorothy gets Hacker out of trouble when the head of the National Theatre, Simon Monk, takes him to task for prioritising nuclear spending over the arts and attempts to blackmail him regarding such examples of government waste, fed to him by Sir Humphrey, as employing a toenail-cutting administrator and demolishing an expensive office block after just two weeks. Some of the more absurd things in terms of money spent and things like that. Hospital with no patients. I don't know if they were all true, but there were... Quite a lot. I I think, as I said at the beginning, you know, this is bizarre truths, just slightly exaggerated and probably other details invented just to add to the comedy of it. Dorothy proposes funding plays in more provincial areas away from the National Theatre, which serves to clearly show Monk's self-interest rather than his passion about theatre as a whole. She also suggests to Prime Minister Hacker the idea of abolishing the Department of Education and having a national education service where parents choose schools and schools get paid per pupil. Once again, without a real objection to work with, Sir Humphrey and Sir Arnold are nevertheless appalled, admitting that it's a good scheme, but only for parents and children, not for anyone that matters. 
So yeah, their ultimate nightmare is an intelligent progressive, such as Dorothy Wainwright. Hacker's gradual realisation of his power brings to mind the famous scene from the rather profound animated film A Bug's Life, where the head grasshopper, remembering that one tidy ant stood up to him, explains why they go back and steal the ant's food every year, even when they don't actually need it. The reason being that if the ants ever figure out their substantial advantage in numbers, quote, they might all stand up to us. Later in the film, as the ants finally confront the grasshoppers, one makes the astute observation that you depend on us. These are the kind of ideas rarely talked about or expanded to the people, though the Occupy movement of a few years ago has left one defining legacy in its identification of the 1% who hold the majority of power and assets against the 99%, which a lot of people, me included, would probably say it's more like 99.9% and 0.1%, but anyway... That was a good legacy of the Occupy movement. So let's call them the 99.9%, who, like the ants, struggled to realise their considerable advantage in one respect at least. In actuality, the terms super-rich or mega-rich apply to around 100,000 individuals in the USA, which equates to roughly 0.0004% of that country's adult population. The idea of the rich depending on the poor is well known, not only in the clear but rarely mentioned fact that the poor pay interest on loans received from banks while the rich keep their money sitting in bank accounts accumulating this same interest that the poor work to pay off. Yes, Minister clearly alludes to this tentative need for the rich and privileged to keep the underclass under enough control to not threaten their elitist position while preventing an actual revolution by throwing them occasional crumbs and keeping them fighting amongst themselves. This last aspect of infighting is enabled by the media system of clear affiliations to competing ideologies that serve to put people in camps, playing on our tribal natures to avoid us ever coming together as one. And in the blog post, I refer the reader back to an earlier blog post of mine called The Money Myth Exploded. I won't go through it all now because uh, (laughs) we're only about halfway through this. But uh, essentially it was a shipwreck and the handful of people realised that they had the skills to be able to live they all had different skills and if they worked together they could create a little cooperative let's call it who could survive then a banker appears and i've said the banker washed up on an island along with skilled and harmonious ordinary men creates and prints newspapers with competing ideologies which blame each other for the problems of the world in order to deliberately disrupt the existing harmony and create rivalries Disharmony is now such a common and accepted thing in society that nobody ever seeks to find its root source and causes. On the subject of ideologies, a crucial aspect of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister is Sir Humphrey's lack of it, a necessity of the job considering that his job and its potential pitfalls remain the same whoever is in power. He admits at various times that I'm not pro or anti-anything and when challenged with the idea that he might be a spy who believes in communism, defends himself with a passionate assertion that I've never believed in anything in my life. The left-right liberal conservative paradigm, which is such a necessary illusion, is shown to be just a state of mind or a linguistic tool when it's shown that the civil service pulls the strings no matter which ideology is supposedly in power. Noam Chomsky, of course, says that in America, elections are the business party versus the business party, with the Republicans just slightly to the right of the Democrats. Anyway... As Sir Humphrey says to Bernard, I've served 11 governments in the past 30 years. If I had believed in all their policies, I would have been passionately committed to keeping out of the common market and passionately committed to going into it. I would have been utterly convinced of the rightness of nationalising steel and also of denationalising it and renationalising it. 
On capital punishment, I'd have been a fervent retentionist and an ardent abolitionist. I would have been a Keynesian and a Friedmanite, a grammar school preserver and destroyer, a nationalisation freak and a privatisation maniac. But above all, I would have been a stark, staring, raving schizophrenic. Hacker on one occasion, early on in his ministry, meets his opposition DAA predecessor, his supposed enemy, and is told by him of Sir Humphrey's standard stalling tactics, which include questioning the method and timing of a particular measure, pointing out various technical, political and legal difficulties, and proposing waiting until the next election and burying important memos in red boxes among other documents. So who is the real enemy? The reader may want to point out to those who really believe in the left-right paradigm that the ever-changing periodic swings in power between the top two parties in countries like the United Kingdom and the USA implies that the citizens continually swing between liberal and conservative, whereas in fact most elections come down to a few regions of swing voters, which in England are the marginal constituencies that Jim Hacker is so afraid of upsetting. In reality, it's good marketing and the presentation of the image of man or woman of the people that swings elections. And Noam Chomsky is fond of pointing out that Barack Obama's 2009 presidential campaign was awarded two major prizes by the marketing industry in that year. Both the shallowness and power of presentation are brilliantly illustrated on two particular occasions in Yes Minister. A profound speech mishap occurs when Hacker as minister visits a local city farm and starts a speech saying that, quote, the world is changing fast. We live in a world of change. The quality of life is becoming more and more important and the environment and conservation, problems of pollution, the future of our children and our children's children, these are today's issues. Before suddenly making reference to concerns about high-rise buildings as we find that he's got the farm speech confused with one he gave to the Architectural Society the previous day. The big laugh comes when he finds the right speech and it's basically the same with the relevant names changed. In one of the finest episodes of Yes Prime Minister, titled The Ministerial Broadcast, the broadcast in question is Hacker's first to the nation as their new Premier. Aside from the usual clichés of go forward together, a better tomorrow, tighten our belts, all pull together, heal the wounds of the past, etc. etc., there are a myriad of other things to take into consideration, such as whether to wear glasses, glasses on means authoritative and commanding, glasses off means honest and open, on and then off means indecisive, leaning too far forward looks like someone selling insurance too far back looks like he's had a liquid lunch at one point hacker is given a sample speech which he greatly likes which turns out to be a recent speech by the opposition a dark suit means traditional values while a light color is businesslike and a mixture might suggest an identity problem a very modern suit high energy wallpaper and abstract paintings can disguise the absence of any real content in the speech for the music Bach signifies new ideas while Stravinsky reflects no change and Hacker finds the need to employ some of these techniques when Sir Humphrey manages to persuade him not to reveal his grand design on an unsuspecting public. Reality versus Fiction Paul Eddington, Jim Hacker, went to Australia during the Yes Prime Minister run and was treated like a statesman. Writer Jonathan Lynn believes that had Eddington run for office as Jim Hacker, with Lynn writing his speeches, he could have won. Very interestingly, Eddington believed that this would bring the whole edifice tumbling down in ruins and refused. This is interesting because collapse is naturally seen as bad, as is anarchy, which by the power of language is inextricably linked with chaos. The literal meaning of anarchy just means a belief in having no government. 
Fans often can't separate fact from fiction, whether in comedy shows, drama series or soap operas. And there's also the idea of entertainment winning people over documentary evidence, even when it's satirical and mocking the clear but hidden reality of politics. It is comedic and slightly tragic to find that the fiercely guarded fortress of North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, happily opened its doors to former basketball star and occasional cross-dresser Dennis Rodman, and politicians appearing on dancing programmes have an excellent opportunity to improve their image and careers in what American actor John Cusack calls rock and roll politics. This phenomenon started in earnest with the 1960 John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon presidential debates, where those on radio thought Nixon won, while the television audience saw it totally differently. JFK's obvious allure compared to the the under-the-weather, unmade-up, square-jawed and average-looking Nixon apparently overriding the strength of the debating and policy content. I think Nixon hadn't shaved as well, so he had a slight stubble. The internet age and all the technological options for masking reality blur this line more and more, which I personally believe is by design, and this could lead to an apathetic surrender to the impossibility of finding any real truth, save that which is right in front of one's eyes. Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister in the 1980s, said that Yes Minister was her favourite programme and implied that it was at least partly true. However, many believe that, save for some inevitable comedic exaggeration, it was almost all true, in tone if not in each specific storyline. As if fact and fiction weren't confused enough, Mrs Thatcher used the occasion of the show winning an award from the National Viewers and Listeners Association to both present the award and also to act in a short sketch apparently written by her but in actuality written by her chief press secretary, Sir Bernard Ingham, and performed along with the privately reluctant Paul Eddington and Nigel Hawthorne. Perhaps the reason for the longevity of the show is exemplified by writer Jonathan Lynn finding out in 1986 that the lead stories in the Daily Telegraph, nicknamed the Daily Torygraph in London, in 1956, i.e. exactly 30 years previously, were basically the same, namely, should Britain be in Europe... Does the special relationship between Britain and the USA threaten European stability? How can we avert? Should we be involved in potential wars in the Middle East? And what should be done about unemployment? This is apparently known and accepted by the educated public. So why the fanfare when a new, well-marketed leader like Barack Obama arrives to take the hot seat? After watching Yes Minister, is political change really to be achieved through the current system? The mainstream are resolute in their corporate need to sell papers while simultaneously joining to pillory any voices that cut to the core of the system's problems, such as Ron Paul in America. Several episodes of Yes Minister Prime Minister had direct links to real events. Labour MP Tony Benn once revealed that the drivers of the top ministers had worked out that Prime Minister Harold Wilson was about to retire when he decided that all former PMs should get a government car and the idea of drivers being privy to more information than the ministers themselves was a recurrent theme in the show. Another episode features a political advisor to the Prime Minister called Sir Mark Spencer, his name a pun on a well-known British high street chain, and a nod to the fact of top businessmen becoming political advisers, such as Lord Sainsbury. The Qumran operations room situation, where alcohol was smuggled in from the embassy of the dry country, dry in inverted commas, for the officials to consume, was based on an actual event. The show featuring Dr Thorne's proposed ban on tobacco advertising and smoking in public places predated the real inaction of the same bill. Also, Philip Morris in the Czech Republic issued a 2001 cost-benefit analysis of smoking similar to Sir Humphrey's, finding that smokers' early mortality and cigarette tax revenue outweighed the costs of health care and lost tax revenue from early death. And that's... Um, Quite a good example of capitalism in action, really, where, for example, corporations 
pollute the environment and then they essentially commit crimes and then they have to weigh up what's cheaper to pay the inevitable fine or to be more ethical and thus to lose profits it's obviously not as simple as that but that's a good example where you're doing a simple analysis of figures and uh, the morality of it basically doesn't matter the invasion of the tiny St. George's Island in one episode is a reference to the 1983 US invasion of Grenada, whose capital is called St. George's, and nobody knowing where the island is is a reference to the general ignorance about the location of the Falkland Islands, over which Britain and America fought a short war in 1982. The resignation of a top Secretary of State over a defence issue and his subsequent casting of doubt on the Prime Minister's integrity and honesty is a reference to the resignation of Michael Heseltine, who openly accused Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, of lying over the Westland affair, where there was a split over whether to bail the Westland aircraft company out with a European or American merger. The civil service leaking information different to the government position happened with Clive Ponting over the sinking of the Belgrano. Finally, a 2004 release of Cabinet Papers revealed that a French security officer had smuggled high explosives into the French embassy in London in 1984 to test British security, just a few days after the Brighton bombing, which was depicted in the episode of Yes Prime Minister, which dealt with Anglo-French squabbles and struggles over the building of the Channel Tunnel. That probably wasn't the most interesting bit for you to listen to, because you'd have to know the show quite well, but essentially uh, a lot of it, as I said earlier, including the most absurd and bizarre storylines, did more or less come from reality. There have been many retrospective shows about Yes Minister which openly discuss its disclosure of government lies and corruption but always with a strange tone of affection. Clearly nobody wants to go too far to actually upset the establishment at its core so lampooning it is, I suppose, a kind of middle ground and a happy medium for those who wish to vent their own frustrations in a light way while enhancing rather than threatening their careers. The miracle of Yes Minister is, as pointed out earlier, its simultaneous brilliance and profundity and also how the comedy seems to override the seriousness of serial lying to the public, including the loss of lives in the most awful way in illegal and contrived wars. Even if the public maybe do get it, i.e. understand subconsciously, there is a need for entertainment, the bread and circuses of Roman times, and TV must generally be light if it wants to win viewers. Anthony Jay, who wrote party political broadcasts for Mrs Thatcher in the 1980s, the era of her premiership and the show's run, says smilingly that the show stands up well, doesn't it just? The radio documentary The View from Whitehall, narrated by former opposition leader William Hague, was another affectionate look at Yes Minister's relationship with the reality of the corridors of power with Haig jokingly mentioning the arms to Iraq scandal and revealing that top politicians laughed till they cried when viewing the Yes Prime Minister episode about arms deals. Haig feigns ignorance of the continual intrigue and secrecy around Whitehall. There is talk of occasional agendas and joking references to the drivers of the top politicians knowing more about what's really going on than their masters, as the show portrayed. Kenneth Clark, who was a cautious, tight-lipped source for the show, was rather bizarrely quoted as saying that Yes Minister was too close to the truth to be shown to the general public. Another contributor notes the similarity between the Jim Hacker diaries and the real-life ones of Alistair Campbell. He was uh, Tony Blair's main advisor, otherwise known as a spin doctor. The writers apparently didn't use some of the real-life stories they were fed by their sources, believing them to be too unbelievable for the public to swallow. A BBC documentary called The Secret World of Whitehall was for a mainstream production quite revealing as we learn that the Cabinet Office was the scene for the thrashing out of the 2010 
Conservative Liberal Democrats coalition, which was almost a Labour Liberal Democrats coalition, calling into question how different the main two parties really are. We learn that the Cabinet Secretary, referred to as the real Sir Humphrey, gets to read secret papers that even the all-powerful Prime Minister does not get to read, and Peter Mandelson states that the Cabinet Secretary exercises discretion like the calcium in his bones. Which again goes back to something I was saying earlier about they select these people. A journalist friend of mine actually said that to be a journalist you've got to have that instinct where even if something traumatic happens you want to get the story as quickly as possible. So I think the quote-unquote right people end up in the right jobs. I'm saying that with some irony of course. Mandelson's quote is an interesting one when you note the documentary's Sir Humphrey reference and the continual use of discretion in Yes Minister as another comedic euphemism for secrecy and deviousness. The documentary discloses that Prime Minister Anthony Eden ordered the burning of papers that would have proved government lies regarding the Suez Crisis, where Britain and France came in as bomb-dropping peacemakers to aid the Israeli assault on Egypt to assume control of the Suez Canal, a move intended to appear spontaneous, but which was clearly planned in advance. Mr Downing, who the famous Downing Street residence of the Prime Minister is named after, is revealed to have been an ex-spy, and the street once contained pubs and whorehouses among its jerry-built, i.e. shoddily-built, houses. The relationship between the Prime Minister and his Cabinet Secretary is revealed to depend somewhat on how much the PM chooses to take control, with Margaret Thatcher apparently announcing the conclusions of meetings at their outset and daring her colleagues to challenge them. The houses at the back of Number 10 and 11 Downing Street, where the PM and Chancellor of the Exchequer live, are described as a cross between strategy rooms and a student union building. An interesting description considering Jonathan Lynn's comparison between his Cambridge Union debating experiences and those of Parliament. The documentary mentions various conflicts and scandals, including Prime Minister James Callaghan's split with his cabinet and advisers on the terms of an IMF, that's International Monetary Fund, loan to ease Britain's mounting debt, Harold Wilson's health problems caused by Yes Minister Source and the first official political advisor, Marsha Williams. Williams had a hold over Wilson and caused him ill health, leading his doctor to offer to do away with her. Mrs Thatcher's special economic advisor managed to force out Chancellor Lawson in the 1980s and Tony Blair had 30 special advisers called SPADs, a post once held by current coalition leaders David Cameron, that was current at the time I was writing this, 2014, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, and in fact by four out of five opposition candidates in 2010. Joe Moore, SPAD to Transport Minister Stephen Byers, famously sent an email on 9-11 stating that it was a good day to bury bad news, such as councillors' expenses scandals. Gordon Brown's attack dog, Darren McBride, caused a scandal when emails of his were leaked that suggested a smear campaign against Tory ministers and their wives, and Blair and Brown's advisers organised smear campaigns against the other party, including the infamous claim about Brown being, quote, psychologically flawed. Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister after Tony Blair and at the time of me writing this blog post in 2014. Smears, black arts and dirty tricks are all admitted, but perhaps accurately described as necessary for survival and are not particularly hidden if perhaps glossed over and usually forgotten in the ever-changing news cycle that undoubtedly dictates the views of the world of most of the general public, despite their apparent scepticism about those who govern them. Yeah, the news cycle is very important because it changes so rapidly now that essentially the old magician's trick of diverting attention seems to work like a charm now. I mean, you know, what's everyone talking about this week as I'm doing this is 
Johnny Depp and that court case with Amber Heard and you know it was Covid for two years and then suddenly it's Ukraine and then it's sadly predictable but I think yes 24-hour news and the speed of the news cycle has um, ramped up something that was already happening. Now I mentioned the blog post here about the thick of it which I mentioned earlier a sitcom described alternatively as yes minister for the 21st century or yes minister was swearing and then there's a spin-off film in the loop it is, in this author's opinion, an example of where comedy is bad for those seeking change as it manages to spoof the run-up to the illegal and monumentally destructive invasion of Iraq in 2003 without offering much in the way of profound insights and the seriousness that this event deserves amongst the obvious agenda of the comedy genre. What is left to be said? Well, plenty, really. Having rewatched every episode of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, I was left amazed at its quality and how many points of interest it brought up. But weaving it all together into one coherent whole is a task that could potentially be a whole book in itself. Examples of the truism that every man has his price and the obvious weaknesses of those corrupted with a cocaine-like addictive drug of power are legion in Yes Minister as well as in any single edition of the long-running Private Eye and at various times in the daily papers. And there are too many to individually highlight so instead, here is a random selection of vignettes and quotes of interest from Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, the common thread being that the system and the characters it attracts all tend to create traps which protect the status quo and are almost impossible to get around. When the president of the small African nation of Burundi is planning a speech urging Scots to, quote, cast off the imperialist yoke, we learn that Britain's foreign secretary gets his news from the television and that there are six options for dealing with this kind of problem. Do nothing, issue a deploring statement, lodge an official protest, cut off aid, break diplomacy or declare war. So Humphrey knows to limit the options of the ministers who to a man like proposals that are quick, simple, popular and cheap rather than complicated, lengthy, expensive and controversial. So Humphrey waits until ministers are in a hurry before giving them things to sign that are possibly against their best interest. In the aforementioned episode where Hacker visits the city farm and professes his love of nature over concrete jungles, he's told that he approved an order for a car park for inland revenue inspectors on the site of the same farm while rushing out for an important meeting. One regular theme of the show is pressure to cut administration costs. The civil service are adept at making illusory cuts by redesignating certain costs as technical and rearranging dates. The biggest fear is a full independent inquiry, but this can be managed if the inquiry chairman is, quote, sound, for example, a civil servant looking for a peerage, i.e. somebody who can be compromised. According to Principal Private Secretary Bernard Woolley, the design and building of motorways in Britain depends on where the permanent secretary went to university, so at that time there were more motorways going to Oxford than Cambridge. Jim Hacker's economy drive is stymied by having to make his own savings and cut down on a few luxuries, forcing him to weigh up this inconvenience against the positive press coverage that his sacrifices garner. And Hacker is such a good comedy character, as is Sir Humphrey, because they have flaws. You know, Hacker does, I think, generally want to change the world. And he is naive at the beginning, but I think he does generally want to reform things. But, again, does he want to threaten his own position? While Hacker is trying to decide whether to take a comfort-over-progress position in the EEC, that's the European uh, community, and pondering the country's foreign policy, Sir Humphrey tells Bernard that Britain has had the same policy for 500 years, namely to create a disunited Europe to divide and rule. The only question is whether to do this from the outside, as before, or from within. And in the light of Brexit, 
again a few people posted on social media some clips and i did as well from yes minister where he was talking about the illusion of united europe and um another thing uh, i wanted to tell you this before i forget there's another scene in the show where where they have to deal with a problem or provide a smokescreen they expel russian diplomats and uh i had to well chuckle slightly to myself when about a month ago at the height of well not the height of the ukraine because it's still going on but when it first happened for the first few weeks there was suddenly a news story about um russian diplomats being expelled anyway to sir humphrey and sir arnold both mps and civil servants need to be sound discreet and morally flexible questions are often planted to backbenchers to catch out a minister trying to quote do things Meanwhile, surveillance is justified by the buzzwords of terrorist, fanatic, etc. And I put in brackets, just like today. The Foreign Office, whose secretary, as mentioned, usually gets his news from the television, are usually given three options for important foreign policy moves, two of which are basically the same and a third totally implausible. American comedian George Carlin talked of the illusion of choice, which is undoubtedly a common tactic to preserve power. In the episode that deals with the British Chemical Corporation being offered a huge contract by the Italians to manufacture metadioxin, similar to the known-to-be-toxic dioxin, we learn that the person charged with investigating and then writing a report on a sensitive topic can be discredited by saying he holds a grudge or is seeking a consultancy job with a multinational corporation, which it seems most are at some point. Other standard ways of planting doubts include talk of a loss of public confidence, i.e. votes, when the metadioxin report comes out in favour of the contract going ahead, Hacker is put in an impossible position by the system of newspapers in Britain. If he stops the contract, the Times and Telegraph will accuse him of cowardice. If he lets it go, the Sun and the Mirror accuse him of murdering unborn babies. So that's another point to ponder. I uh, quoted Hacker earlier talking about who reads the papers. and It all seems a big stitch up to me to have all these national newspapers. We seem to have more than any other country I know of. Yeah, they all tend to the right, really. There's not actually that many. There's not that much um, ideological um, variety there. But because uh, someone in the Prime Minister's position has got to keep all the media sweet, you can force him into positions where someone could attack him from one side or another, you know? On the subject of newspapers, the phrase restricted information means that said information was in the papers yesterday, while confidential information will be in the papers today. In addition, the government must always tell the press everything that they could find out anyway. A speech is not to prove the truth, it's so nobody else can prove you're lying. To the misogynistic civil servants trying to explain why women don't get top jobs, married women have too many responsibilities, while unmarried ones are not well-rounded enough. It's Catch-22, and Sir Humphrey has a great line, Catch-22, subparagraph A. Leak inquiries never achieve anything. If civil servants have leaked, it seems unfair to blame them as it's the role of the politicians to take the fall. If other ministers are responsible for the leak, it's dangerous because it could expose further information about leaks, most of which apparently originate from the Prime Minister. Opinion polls are fixed to achieve whatever result is desired. For example, if the questions ask if you're worried about youth unemployment, a high crime rate and lack of discipline, and believe in teaching leadership skills and offering the young a challenge, you would be for national service. That means that you're obligated to go into the army for a certain amount of time. However, if the questions ask about the fear of war, the growth of armaments, giving youngsters arms against their will and training them to kill, you would be against it. So Humphrey believes that as people who die prematurely from smoking cost the taxpayer less than they would in pensions and social security if they all live longer, they are, quote, laying down their lives for the good of all. 
To Sir Humphrey, moral principles are a selfish indulgence and emotion must take a back seat to cool decision-making. Sir Humphrey also calls smoking restrictions a blow against freedom. And I put in brackets, in this case, the freedom to slowly kill yourself. If you've never heard of Edward Bernays, look up Bernays' Torches of Freedom. It's how he got women smoking, or certainly increased the number of women smoking. The standard excuses for not disclosing potentially damaging files, namely that they have security implications, were destroyed in floods and or lost in the move to new premises, can potentially stop any or all files being released. If an inquiry or new policy is a failure, it can be said that, quote, heavy cuts in staff and budget stretch resources. It was a worthwhile experiment that created jobs. A certain action was done before important facts were known or said failure was a lapse by an individual which is being dealt with internally. So Humphrey thinks that you should never look into anything you don't have to and never set up a report unless you know the outcome as government is about stability, not morality. Hacker concludes that, and as an idealist, you must do the right thing without anyone noticing, and politics is about helping people, even in some cases friendly terrorists, a.k.a. freedom fighters. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. When Hacker first becomes Prime Minister, he learns about the nuclear question, and also that Prime Ministers don't have personal cooks, and that his wife is too busy to make him lunch. He muses that, I have the power to blow up the world, but not to ask for scrambled eggs. When the post of new governor of the Bank of England is about to be rewarded, the civil service and top bankers are looking for the right man who will agree to a bailout at the taxpayer's expense, where have we heard that before, and a cover-up of indiscreet dealings. When Hacker wants to appoint Mr Clean for the job, Sir Humphrey mentions that if all other methods of discrediting the writer of an unfavourable report fail, you can hint at homosexuality or adultery, depending on his sexual preference. Again, that's that hint. It seems that you can hint about something that has zero evidence, but there's an innate sense that, as I said earlier, no smoke without fire. So Humphrey also tries to defend embezzlement and bribery as, quote, unsecured temporary loans invested unluckily. And finally, when Hacker is found and photographed drunk as a lord outside the French embassy, the friendlier papers describe his condition as tired and emotional. So... We've made it to the end. I don't really have too much more to say because obviously I was interjecting as we went. But uh, yeah, a huge recommendation to watch um, all five series of these uh, two shows combined. And uh, also The Thick of It as well. Well worth watching. And finally, there was an American version of The Thick of It called Veep. I think the main character played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus was loosely based on Hillary Clinton. But it was uh, Armando Iannucci again. He was, uh, was also involved with early Alan Partridge. So it all goes round. So I would like to say thank you for listening. I will endeavour to find some good clips. If you haven't looked at them already, I'll try and find some salient ones and put them in the show notes. And uh, that's it. I haven't decided on the next episode yet. I've got a few contenders and there's plenty more material, either in the can already or certainly in the ideas bank. And finally... As a little Easter egg, I mentioned that I was on Julian's show, The Mind Renewed. We did this truth comedy episode and we talked about Yes Minister. So I'm going to include a little bit of that after the final music. So um, enjoy that and uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you soon. Goodbye.
Purpose, and I'm saying that that's the the ways in which the art of comedy can help to alert people to the truth of what's going on in our world. That is to sort of help break through the propaganda matrix that we find ourselves in, but also、um, the ways in which comedy can reveal and help to free us from ways of thinking that can sometimes inhibit critical thought in various ways. The only action is. Uh, Sir Humphrey, the civil servant, rushing into a room to sort of stop Jim Hacker going on TV and making a huge gaffe. You know, that's the only action in, in it. So,、oh, there's another middle-aged man, isn't there? Sir Arnold Robinson,、um, who's、yeah. is he the is cabinet secretary? Is that right? Yeah, just briefly, the, the cabinet secretary is basically the civil servant to the prime minister. Sir Arnold is an even more sort of.、Uh, Jaded and cynical civil servant who advises the Humphrey, and I mean, they're absolute masters at, at stopping progress. You know, and they continually say it; they don't hide it. They say, "Yes, ministers are—it's a problem. Politicians—they've started doing things." <laughs> and at one point, they say,、uh, "There's actually a politician with two ideas, which is highly dangerous." You know, one idea is fine, but two ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the conversations that they have with each other—you know—they're priceless, aren't they? Those conversations—they're、yeah. so revealing of a certain kind of attitude. And、uh, there was one conversation they had. This was in the the Christmas、yeah. episode, which is the transition between、uh, yes minister and yes prime minister, where Hacker is、uh, tipped to become prime minister, and they're actually discussing amongst themselves what kind of person would fit the bill、yeah. of prime minister. And、uh, it's a fantastic sort of Gilbertian kind of conversation they have, where the dialogue is actually distributed between the two of them. So they say one says one word and the other says the other word. It's incredible, and I've got it written down here. And the,、um, they're discussing this:、uh, what candidate they want, and、um, a compromise candidate, malleable, flexible, likable. No firm opinions, no big ideas, not intellectually committed, without the strength of purpose to change anything. Someone you know can be manipulated, professionally guided, and leave the business of government in the hands of experts. And then there's a silence, and then they both laugh because they're both thinking of Jim Hacker, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful moment full of truths there. Yeah, and I mean,、uh, I think it would be a bit too much to go into all the other stuff that happens, but basically, the front runners for the for the prime minister who's suddenly retired are the chancellor and the foreign secretary, which is two of the top positions. But the problem with those two, according to the civil servants, is that they're both progressives and with ideas. <laughs> so again, it's very profound, as you said, because. They want someone who's controllable, and the way that they get the two front runners out the way is by opening their MI5 files. <laughs> Absolutely, I thought that was really priceless. Where they say, "Have you had a chance to glance at their MI5 files?" No. Oh, you should always send for a cabinet minister's MI5、Absolutely. files if you enjoy a good laugh. And I immediately thought of、uh, what Annie Machon said、uh, about、uh, the, the situation, where you know, I think she was talking about Tony Blair or something. The particular thing that I heard, and she, she was saying, "Oh, yeah, of course, there's an MI5 file on all these people." So. You You know, do you don't know what to what extent they're blackmailed in all kinds of ways? To what extent they're controlled through this mechanism? And there it was, back in the nineteen eighties, being told to everybody. You know, through through this comedy,、exactly. it was remarkable, really. Yeah, and it makes you wonder. I mean, when these people get to top positions, you know, what's made available to them? You know,、mm. presumably, when you're in a position of power, you know, the, the world's your oyster. You can have any indulgence you want, and then immediately they've got something on you. I think I'm pretty sure that's how it works, frankly. I mean, it's similar, of course, in the, in the states. I mean, Russ Tice has, has often said things like this, hasn't he? Where you know the intelligence agencies over there have got all kinds of info on all kinds of politicians, and you know they're being leveraged in all kinds of ways all the time. You just you every just, man has a weakness,、mm, you know, and the information、yeah. is known more than it ever has been because everybody's snooped on.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just for your American listeners, MI5 is the equivalent of the FBI, and MI6 would be the CIA. So MI5 is the internal, mm. the National Intelligence Service. The bottom line is that government is cutthroat and cynical and career-driven. I don't doubt that at a local level, people who get into politics, there are true idealists who who just want to help and who are not well-paid and do work hard and everything. But at a certain point, I think people have got to accept that someone who gets a certain way through the system knows what's going on, you know. Well, it's true of Hacker, isn't it? Because, as yeah. you said, he started off as an idealist, and you actually see yeah. him in the programme acting like he wants to be an idealist most of the time. Yes. And yet there's a... Certainly in that... I keep coming back to that particular episode because I think it was so brilliant, that transitional mm. one between the two series, where it's so obvious there that he becomes a little civil servant. He becomes an Appleby mm. because he's extorted into the situation because of these MI5 files and having to get these other candidates out of the way he's extorted into the situation where he has to be like appleby and uh, he has no choice it's like a chess game and he's now a pawn and he knows it but he he actually acts in the same kind of way and i thought it was quite revealing actually so here is an idealist who has the idealism knocked out of him and there's nothing he can do about it yeah well the writers described him as a mouse who learns how to be a rat right. which i thought was yeah. brilliant yeah you're right. I mean, this show just perfectly shows the trajectory of, a, of someone's career. You know, he starts off pretty naive, pretty idealistic, and I think with a genuine conscience. Mm-hmm. And I think he manages to keep that conscience through the series. Yes. But you just realise through necessity he has to toughen up and he has to become uh, slightly Machiavellian, as which is what you're saying, really, isn't it? Yes, that's right. He becomes part of the machine and nothing you can do about it, yeah. The other point of many points, all the scenes were shot in uh, sort of secret rooms. You never actually see the Houses of Parliament and you never really see the public either. I mean, occasionally you see them. And the point was that that's where the decisions are taken. So really what what happens in uh, Parliament, you know, particularly Prime Minister's questions and when you make speeches to the public, everything has already been worked out in advance. And another brilliant quote uh, Sir Humphrey says about Prime Ministers, Prime Ministers are like actors they just have to look plausible, stay sober, and say the lines they're given. Yeah. It's just a perfect example. It's funny and completely profound at the same time. I listened to David Cameron for about 20 seconds the other day before I you know, was reaching for the sick bag, just going on about, oh, this is freedom and democracy. And, um, this is a- and you thought, this is Jim Hacker. <laughs> it's Jim Hacker, yeah. With a speech probably written by uh, Sir Humphrey, yeah. I want to just come back to this business about decisions being made in camera, really, and all the outward expressions to the public, and this is all just show, Mm -hmm. really, (laughs) on that level. There was a fantastic quote by Sir Humphrey Appleby, of course, he was talking about British democracy, and he described it as a civilised, aristocratic government machine tempered by occasional general elections. And I just thought, in just one sentence there, that says an awful lot, doesn't it? That uh, elections really are just throwing a little bit of the illusion of freedom to the the small people while the real decisions are made in these oak-lined rooms. And uh, I was reminded when I heard that of the thing that Noam Chomsky often makes reference to that Trilateral Commission report in 1975 called The Crisis of Democracy on the governability of democracies, in which the problem there, the crisis of democracy, seems to be that, well, there's too much democracy. (laughs) People are too engaged politically, and so from an elite perspective, it's difficult to govern people. There's just too much democracy, an excess of democracy, as they call it. Hacker gets absolutely swamped in bureaucracy. The quote, he says, there's either so little information that you don't know the facts or so much that you can't find them. And he calls it Catch-22, and then Sir Humphrey calls it uh, Catch-22, subparagraph A. 
which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> One of the best lines. You know, and, and the DAA, there's also sort of nods to Orwell as well. I mean, Orwell's not mentioned in the show, but it's very Orwellian. And well, the DAA itself is it the Department of Administrative Affairs. Exactly. It's a whole department <laughs> set up to administrate administrators. And so Humphrey says, it takes time to do things now. It's more expensive to do them cheaply, and it's more democratic to do them in secret. Lost files are under consideration, is that right? Oh, no, it's um, oh. under consideration means we've lost the file, and under active consideration means we're trying <laughs> to find it. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, in some sense, bureaucracy is actually a tool of the system, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you see that with Hacker, where he's given all these papers that he has to deal with and that actually prevents him from doing anything important and that's quite consciously done isn't it yeah and so humphrey gets him to sign something just as he's leaving for a meeting and hacker says do i have to do it now and he says well you did uh, promise minister and he signs it another thing so humphrey does is just as hacker wants to leave so humphrey will just bamboozle him with words uh, what i call the yeah. verbal bureaucracy which is just it's maddening him with so many words that he doesn't understand because Humphrey's very verbally dexterous that uh, he just, in the end, he yes. just signs because he's just beaten into submission. So That's another interesting thing that uh, Appleby, Sir Humphrey, comes over as being this sort of super intellectual. But actually, mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that he is any brighter than Hacker. It's a, he, he has right. this background, doesn't he? You know, he's been to Eton and Oxford and sort of therefore has this confidence that he's secure in the system and he's been brought up to believe that he's superior. Whereas Hacker, mm. you know, went to the LSE and studied economics or whatever. So he might be much more yeah. mathematically literate than the Appleby. But that doesn't matter because Hacker doesn't have that same sort of status and that class security that the other guy has. And, and I think that that's played on a lot, isn't it? So that Hacker yeah. feels inferior, even though he actually probably isn't intellectually. Yeah. What you're saying is it comes down to appearance, you know, and our society is basically 80-90% about appearance. So there's a heck of a lot of bluff. <laughs> yeah, 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 there is. The other thing was about the media, because there's a lot of scenes as well where they meet the media and it's clear that there's collusion between not only the two parties but them and the media as well. Because if you read, uh, for example, The Guardian, which is traditionally left-wing, and The Times or The Telegraph, which is nicknamed The Tory Graph, which is very conservative, you're going to get two very different spins on, on the same facts and the same information. Before the interview, we were saying about how remarkable it is that this was 30 years ago and the warning was there, as it were. You know, this was actually being brought out for people to understand. And people yeah. did. I mean, I remember people commenting about and saying, oh, this is yeah. so true. We can see so much of the reality of, of life in this, but it didn't lead anywhere. It just stayed as entertainment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were saying, weren't we, it's this thing of um, holding two opposing opinions at the same time, basically. We mentioned cognitive dissonance. It's a sort of form of that where you can say, oh, yeah, that's true, but then, like, another part of your mind, perhaps, or another part of your brain filters out the idea of actually being outraged about yeah. it. And so the, ne the next general so, election comes around and people go out and vote and think it actually really does matter, even though they've been watching this program and saying, oh, it's so true. That these exactly. Things <laughs> they have, <laughs> it's, it's they curious. have instinct. Yeah, and uh, comedy does bring out that instinct. I think when you laugh, a lot of the time you're laughing because something is true. You're not only laughing because the joke is funny. There was one other thing, tiny thing. Nigel Hawthorne, who played Sir Humphrey, who was a fantastic actor and he won... Lots Brilliant. of awards. Yeah. But what's very interesting is that in the very rare moments when Sir Humphrey Appleby makes a mistake, 
Nigel Hawthorne does this incredible face where Sir Humphrey suddenly regresses to looking like a child. That's very true. And what I thought was very interesting (laughs) is the idea of standing up to fear. If you think of it, it's sort of a cliched sort of scary boss in the office. You know, I used to have one of those scary bosses. You know, and I used to go to work terribly intimidated. I worked in an office a good few years ago. And I remember I read something or I watched something and they were saying, uh, you know, behind every scary boss is basically sort of inadequacy or there's some need to exert power on other people. And if you stand up to them, you'll be amazed how quickly they crumble. And I tried it and it sort of turned out to be true. You know, it's, it's, it's the bully thing, isn't it, really? You stand up to the bully and you'll be amazed how quickly they crumble. And a lot of people get their power from the power you give them.